Dear Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the book of Romans and for the story that Paul tells us for how we're saved. We didn't need to know these things to be saved. And thank you for that, Father, for if salvation required an understanding of theology, no one could be a part of your family, Father. We know that. But now that we have received something that you have given us and have graciously made available to us, Father, now the call is that we understand what you've done so that we can give you greater glory for it and so that we can share it with others. And Lord, teach us tonight about how we have become a child of God. Show us the depths of it, Father. Give us an appreciation for the magnitude of it. Help us to make it childlike in our understanding so that we can share it with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a very old joke that I know you've heard and goes something like this. A traveler on a country road comes to a creek where the bridge has been swept away by a recent flood. And the traveler sees an old farmer standing next to where the bridge used to be. And so he asks the farmer, is there a way to backtrack and find some other way to get across this creek? And the farmer responds, yep, you just go back two miles, turn right. Uh, no, no, wait, go back one mile, turn left. No, the, the, and then, then the farmer stops for a minute, shrugs his shoulders, scratches his head, and says to the traveler, you know, come to think of it, you can't get there from here. We get that phrase from that joke. You can't get there from here. It's an appropriate way to summarize Romans 1 through 3, up into where we are today in verse 21. Up till chapter 3, verse 21, you can't get there from here. Men, in their ignorance, have imagined countless ways that we might merit entrance into heaven when we die. All of those inventions Paul categorizes into one of four religious lies that we've addressed in the previous chapters, paganism, moralism, nomianism, and patriarchal Judaism. Each of those categories possesses a critical flaw in its thinking, which shows it to be a lie. Pagans worship creation, and yet they overlook the question of who created everything they're worshiping. Moralists judge themselves worthy of heaven while supposing that their obvious sin won't disqualify them in the end. Nomianists define for themselves rules for entry into heaven, making sure that the standard they set is low enough that they can reach it. And patriarchal Judaism ignores all questions of standards or personal goodness because they're trusting simply in the fact that God will play favorites for their sake. Paul shot down all four of those categories by exposing each flaw. None of those imagined ways to heaven are actual ways to heaven because none of them ultimately corrects for the very reason why we are barred from God's presence in the first place. None of them answers the fundamental question, how did mankind get into the situation that we're in in the first place? And Paul raises this fundamental question in Romans 3, verses 10 through 18 from last week's study. This is that area of deep doctrine on the problem of the sin nature of mankind. That he says, the problem is our nature. It produces sinful actions. We were born with this nature, a spiritual birth defect. And this defect has to be corrected before we can enjoy fellowship with God. You and I inherit our sin nature from our parents, who inherited it from their parents, and so on. We all descend from a common ancestor who passed along his sinful nature through reproduction, putting all of humanity in the same predicament, in which we have sin and all its horrible consequences, and therefore, unless and until we correct for the sin nature that we have, then we will never reach the standard of perfection required by God. 
So whatever solution someone might propose for how you get to heaven, that solution cannot stop merely at addressing behavior. It has to go deeper. It has to address the nature of humanity, which causes all of those sinful behaviors. And if a solution does not address our sinful nature, then it is not giving us a way to heaven. None of those lies I mentioned come close to addressing the nature of us and what caused us to be who we are to begin with. So let's summarize. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're born sinners. So it's not enough to address just our behavior. In fact, even if you and I could devise some means by which we could go back in time and erase that track record of sin that all of us have going back to our earliest years, and even if on top of that we could find some way to avoid adding any new sin on top of those to what comes in the future so that we could wipe our past clean and walk the straight and narrow going forward, even if we could do that, we would still be sinners by nature. And our identity would be enough to bar us from heaven, even if those other two things were possible. So if you're trying to get to heaven without changing your spiritual nature, you can't get there from here. Because we could not solve this problem in our own strength, God made a way available. And that's where we are now in chapter 3, verse 21. Paul now gives us a summary in these next series of verses to conclude the chapter. A summary of the gospel in all its finer theological points. It is a summary, though, and what he'll do in the succeeding chapters is he will go back to the summary in its various parts and he will explain it more so that we understand all of the implications of these details. So this is a very high-level summary of some very important concepts. Let me just begin by reading the first part of it. I'm not going to read the whole of it in once. Let's just start with chapter 3, verse 21 through verse 26. Paul says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. As I said, these verses begin Paul's summary of the solution to our sin. And the summary, as I said, runs from 21 all the way to 26. Actually, it's pretty much the rest of the chapter, although he does break at 26, and I'll talk about that more later. Chapters 3, verse 21 through 26 is one sentence in Greek. Paul's known for that. And in this discourse, Paul unfolds this remarkably intricate plan that God has put together to bring men and women into heaven despite our sin nature. That plan, as Paul gives it here, has seven parts, which we'll examine one at a time. And many of these parts get examined in great detail in chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. All right, so we're going to look at it in steps. Altogether, God's plan addresses all the problems that Paul raised in the earlier chapters of this book concerning our sin nature. So all the problems of those previous lies are all being rectified in the solution that God has designed. God's solution does away with condemnation for every human being who is in the faith. And in the process, he overcomes the spiritual barrier that is created by our spiritual nature. What God has planned to do in the plan of salvation, he addresses all of the flaws that were mentioned in the earlier lies. He does away with condemnation. 
He overcomes the spiritual barrier that Paul talked about in Romans 3 that says no one understands, no one seeks for God, no one does good. This plan fixes that. Our sinful nature blinds us to spiritual truth, prevents us from truly seeking God, but God's solution addresses that. And it begins in this opening statement, which we read last week just briefly, where I read, apart from the law. Actually, in the Greek, there is no word the. It's just apart from law. I'm going to call this first part the disclaimer, and I call it that because it sets aside any notion of performing human works to obtain righteousness. And he's already addressed that to some degree. He's going to go into it much more at the end of this chapter. But based on Paul's analysis of all those religious lies, it makes perfect sense for him to begin the truth by saying, apart from works. Because obviously our solution to entering heaven is not going to be found in law, in any set of rules, or in any other contrived system, not even in God's own law for that matter. Because a new course, a better course of behaving, were we to offer you one, cannot fix the past. And your past stands to condemn you no matter how well you do going forward. That's the biggest problem with law. Law doesn't reach into the heart and change it, nor does it deal with the past behaviors. So simply put, our problem isn't what we do. Our problem is who we are. Who we are spiritually drives what we do. And therefore, you can't solve a problem merely by changing what you do. You have to find a new spiritual nature, not a new list of laws or works. So it has to be apart from law. Paul's saying, logically, there's no solution to be found in doing things when the problem isn't what you do, but who you are. So apart from law, we need to look for another way. A way that changes us, spiritually speaking. That gives us a new nature. One that is equal to God's nature in the sense of without sin, equaling his perfection. So that once we obtain the nature of God, then you can logically expect that our behaviors will begin to change as well in keeping with our new nature. And that's apart from law, which moves you to part two of the solution. He says, the righteousness of God manifested. Since you cannot help yourself in light of your predicament, you and I have no choice but to look to the mercy of God for a solution. There is no solution found among men for the problems of our heart. And God is willing to grant mercy, Paul says, by assigning us his righteousness in place of our unrighteousness. That is, we trade in our old nature for the perfect nature of God himself. Now that also makes perfect sense based on what we've learned earlier about our sinful nature. It isn't going to be enough for us to simply try harder to do better. We have to discard the source of all of that bad behavior. And we have to become perfect by nature, which then leads to better behavior. And the only nature in the universe, or outside the universe, that is perfect is God himself, Jesus declared. The solution is unavoidable, right? If no one's good but God alone, and I've got to be good to be with God, and the problem isn't what I do but who I am, I need to be like God. I need his nature. That's the solution. Paul says this Nature of God, he's using the term righteousness, but you could substitute the term nature of God, the righteousness of God. That righteousness is manifested to us. The Greek word for manifested, it's in the Greek perfect tense. It could be translated, is now forevermore revealed. The righteousness of God is now forevermore revealed. He's clarifying with this particular word choice, Paul is clarifying that God's solution is something brought to us not something we discover on our own. Here again, that makes perfect sense, given what we learned about our nature, right? If our spiritual nature, our sinful spiritual nature, is a barrier preventing us from seeking God or knowing God, it blinds us to spiritual truth, it leads us away from God, not toward Him, 
then how else could you and I hope to find a solution to our problem unless God should reveal it to us? Because you're not going to find it on your own. You're not even looking for it. Although you may be looking for religion. That's a different problem. Paul adds that the revelation of God's righteousness began long ago in the Word of God. He says, The law and the prophets foretold of God's plan to bring sinful mankind His righteousness. And this surprises some people, especially those who may have had a disproportionate appreciation for the law. The law here refers to the five books that Moses wrote. The prophets then would refer to the prophetic works of Scripture. Putting those two words together, it collectively refers to the entire Hebrew Bible. It's a shorthand way of of what we today would call the Old Testament. And Paul says the Old Testament bears witness to God's plan to bring us His righteousness. And the law and the prophets work kind of like a good cop, bad cop routine. Because... They do two things at the same time. They show us the impossibility of reaching the standard of heaven on our own because the law says, here's what righteousness looks like, and as you measure yourself against that law, you can't help but come away saying, I'm not good enough. And the prophets, when they talk to Israel and God's people about their sins, they make it clear how far from God God's people were in their daily behaviors. So that's the bad cop. But then secondly, the law and the prophets teach that the Lord is going to make a way for his people to receive his righteousness. For example, in the law, which is a way of saying the first five books, so it includes Genesis. In the law, you read the story of Abraham being declared righteous because of his faith. Or you hear of Abraham taking Isaac to the top of the mountain to be sacrificed as God directed. And then he says to his son, when his son says, hey, I don't see a lamb. What's up with that, dad? No lamb. And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb. All of these are hints or suggestions of what God has planned for his people. That is, that he will make available something that will suffice to provide them with righteousness as an act of God's mercy. It's all there as you see it in retrospect. But the point of Paul is that God has been speaking forevermore about this plan. It's not a new plan. The prophets themselves speak about a day in which God would bring this new spirit to his people that would bring about a righteousness in them. Remember in Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one, where we all go to see the new covenant described? The prophet says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Any hint of works or of law in that promise? None whatsoever. So Paul's explanation for how you and I would reach heaven isn't new, and it's not surprising, at least not to anyone who's read their Bible. Some Christians mistakenly assume that God offered men and women of times past one solution for entry into heaven under the Old Covenant, and that now he's offering a new and different solution to those of us under the New Covenant. But Paul says, nah, that's not right. The solution has always been the same. You and I need the righteousness of God because we can't get there on our own, and God is prepared to provide that. And now Paul explores what that means, how that happens. By the way, he addresses this whole issue of the Old Testament prefiguring the method of righteousness that we're learning about. He talks about that in chapter 4, using examples like Moses and Abraham and David. So Paul's teaching that our solution to reaching heaven is possible through the obtaining of righteousness from God. All right, so if you're tracking with me, then you have a question about now. The next question is, 
How do I get God's perfect nature? How do I actually obtain what God alone has? And especially given my life of sin, how is that compatible with God's plan? How is it even possible? Chapters 4 and 5 explain this in detail, but he summarizes it here. Verse 22, Paul says, God's righteousness is revealed to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Now I want you to pay particular note of the preposition that Paul uses there, his choice of preposition, through. Some of you might have been expecting him to say it a different way. The preposition through emphasizes the word manifested. It explains how you and I came to know that we have obtained God's righteousness. In heaven, God grants a person his righteousness as an act of his grace and mercy. Then that heavenly decision was manifested, or we could say made known or revealed, through a person's faith in Christ. So we need to understand this. This will be a major point for later in the letter, and it's something that a lot of Christians don't appreciate just because it's not taught enough. Faith becomes the instrument through which we come to know God's righteousness. Theologians refer to this process as imputed righteousness. The word imputed means to attribute to an individual the actions or qualities of another person as a result of that other's action. For example, when a child is adopted... That child is imputed with a new family name. The child receives this particular quality of these parents, that is their name, because of an action taken by the parents. The child does nothing to acquire the new family name, but by the actions of the parents, the child is imputed a new family name. That's how the word could be used. And that's how we receive God's mercy. God imputes His righteousness to us. That is, He assigns us his spiritual nature, his righteousness, because of the act of another. We don't obtain that righteousness for ourselves. It is given to us. And the act that made it possible wasn't even our own act. It was an act that God himself carries out to bring it about. So once God imputes his righteousness to us, think about this, once that imputation has happened, it happens in the heavenly realm. It's a decision of God in his throne from his vantage point. In heaven, God imputes righteousness to us, and as Paul will say here in a minute, as an act of his grace. How do you and I know that that's happened? What tells us that we have been imputed with righteousness? You get a telegram from God? What tells a child that they've been adopted? Some means of transfer of knowledge needs to take place in order for the person to know they've been imputed with righteousness. Paul says, the righteousness of God being imputed to us was manifested to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul never teaches that we obtain righteousness because of our faith in Jesus Christ. That phrase never appears in the Bible. Saying it that way would imply that our actions of believing are a switch that leads God to then act in response and impute us with his righteousness after we have believed. The Bible never says that. You and I know that's how it's often said to us, how people characterize belief generally, and it's an inaccurate, inarticulate way of expressing what the Bible says very specifically. So if you say we are saved because of our faith, you have put our faith in the driver's seat of a process that then says God responds to. That flip of the narrative would suggest we initiate our own process of salvation. It would be like saying that the adopted child, in my example, first took for himself 
the certain family name of another couple, and that that choice of his then led the couple to adopt him. That's what we'd be saying if you say your faith then creates in God the propensity to impute righteousness to you. Remember, Paul has already said and established from Scripture that we are all lost, all of us. We are all without understanding of spiritual truth, all of us. And there is none who seeks God, no, not one. So if the process of our salvation did depend on us taking that first step, no one would ever be saved, according to Scripture. Because by our fallen nature, we have no inclination to take that step. It would be like offering a comatose patient a cure to his condition, and yet he can't respond to take the pill off the tray and and swallow it. It's asking too much of us to expect that dead things would move to bring themselves back to life. I should add, if you go do a search for yourself in the New Testament, you will see the consistency in Paul's language across all his letters. Paul says righteousness comes through, and sometimes Paul says by, but those words are meaning the same thing in this context. Salvation comes through or by faith, which indicates that faith is the means God uses to deliver us his mercy. It would be like a man who receives a telegram announcing that he has come into a large inheritance on the occasion of his uncle's death. The man became an heir the moment his uncle died, but it waited for the arrival of the telegram before the man became aware of that grant. So you could say that the uncle's grant of inheritance was manifested through a telegram message. And the Bible says the same thing about your righteousness in God. It was imputed to you by an act of God, and it was manifested to you by the faith you possess in Jesus Christ. Now Paul moves to part four. That's part three of this breakdown. Part four, Paul says, this grant of salvation is for all who believe there is no distinction. Paul's emphasis in that phrase is on the word all, meaning both Jew and Gentile. God's plan of salvation will be manifested in everyone by the same means, which is belief, or you could say faith, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is reiterating that Jews did not receive one way to heaven while Gentiles are now receiving it some other way. All saints from Adam until the last will be saved by a grant of God's righteousness manifested through the same means that is in faith. And this makes sense as well because Paul said in verse 23, all, meaning both Jew and Gentile, have the same problem. All have sinned. That's what All doesn't just mean all humanity. Yes, it includes all humanity, because if you say Jew and Gentile, you've got all humanity. But it's in this context of one solution because everyone's got the same problem, no matter whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile. All have sinned, therefore all shall fall short of the mark required to enter heaven. And here again, Paul says the standard for entry into heaven is that you share in the nature of God. Did you notice that? He does not say all have fallen short of the standard of heaven or all had fallen short of the goodness of God. Those are somewhat synonyms for this, but they're not exactly the same. He says, we've fallen short of the glory of God, which is a way of saying His nature. So if you are not equal to the glory of God in terms of your nature, then you won't have entrance to heaven. It's not enough to say that we don't have sin, or we have stopped sinning, or we have no more sin. We have to say we are as perfect as God is perfect, and anything less is to fall short of His glory. So if all men are in the same predicament, Paul's saying, well, then all men need the same solution. And that's why God's manner of saving men and women has never varied over time. But what has varied from Old Testament to New? 
What's varied is the degree of the plan that God has revealed through his word. So in the earliest times, the need for God's mercy and of a provision of his righteousness was just as evident to man then as it is now. But what they did not understand as we do is exactly how the Lord was going to make that provision available. It was sufficient for them to trust in the provision undefined. And so it was until it was defined. Now that the plan is fully known, we have the full understanding. As the writer of Hebrews explains it at the beginning of his letter, he says in one one and one two, he says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he's spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So the writer makes the comparison for us. In the past, the Old Testament saints heard a little here and a little there, piecemeal, an understanding of of this or that, but not the full story that we now have in Christ. What they did know, though, was that God needed to make a way for them. As Abraham told his son, the Lord will provide a lamb for us. That's the expectation. The next question we might ask Paul, then, is how can God grant us his righteousness simply because we believe in Jesus Christ? How can he do that? How can he overlook all our sin? How can he wipe our slate clean just on that basis? And Paul's fifth point here in the summary in verse 24 answers that question. He says, we are justified as a gift of God's grace because Christ Jesus has redeemed us. That line there, there's actually three important theological ideas in that one verse. We'll just look at them each in turn. First, he says we're justified. The word is a legal term, as I assume many of you may know, legal term that means acquitted, like in a court of law. To be acquitted means to be effectively declared innocent, as when a defendant is acquitted by a jury at trial. But remember, to be acquitted doesn't mean you're actually innocent. In fact, in our jurisprudence, we are taken to using the term not guilty rather than innocent, because it acknowledges the reality that the system has not determined for a fact that you're innocent. It's just not been able to determine you're guilty. You've been acquitted of the charges. What it really is saying is this. You've been relieved from paying any penalty. You've been relieved from any consequence, from any punishment. And so Paul, using the same legal term, he says God's means of assigning us his righteousness begins with God's court rendering a verdict of not guilty for us concerning our sin. That's the first point. You've been justified. You've been declared not guilty. Secondly, Paul says that verdict is a gift given to us by the grace of God. But notice something here that violates typical Christian thinking and verbiage. When you ask people what is the gift of God, and they'll use terms like it's the gospel or the offer of salvation or Christ himself, the chance to be saved by belief in the gospel, that's the gift of God. The Bible is very clear on what the gift of God is. The gift of God is justification. The gift is a declaration of our innocence. It is not the opportunity to be declared innocent. It is a declaration having been made already for us. The decision for our verdict is entered in to the court in heaven by a decision that God makes as a result of his grace toward us. Grace, as you know, means undeserved favor, with an emphasis on the word undeserved. God's favor toward us in this regard wasn't triggered by anything we said or by anything we did. God determines to declare someone justified simply as an act of his mercy, as an act of his grace. It'd be like a defendant appearing at trial only to learn that the judge has already decided to acquit the person before they even showed up at the court. Furthermore, justification is an act. It's not a process. 
So a defendant is declared innocent or not guilty in our case in an instant, and there is no process for bringing this back to the court, for bringing it up again. The declaration is true in that moment, and it remains true forever aftermore. Never again is that decision revisited. And our jurisprudence also includes this concept of double jeopardy, that you cannot bring someone back again after you've already declared them to be innocent once. And that itself finds its source in the biblical idea of justification, that it is just morally, according to God's law, that once someone be declared innocent, that is a forevermore result. Thirdly, God's actions to acquit are valid and lawful because someone has redeemed us. Paul says Jesus redeemed us. Redemption is also a legal term. It means to have paid a ransom to free someone from bondage. So a slave could be redeemed from a debt owed to his master. A prisoner could be redeemed from a debtor's prison by someone making a payment of bond to the court. And similarly, all men and women are under bondage to sin. We're in debt to God for our sin, our lifetime of sin. That debt must be paid. Or else, a verdict of innocence would be a miscarriage of justice. We know God is perfect without sin himself, and therefore he can only declare someone like you or I justified, innocent in his court, if that debt has been paid somehow. To do otherwise would be unjust. Paul says our justification is legally possible because Christ paid our price, redeeming us from the penalty we rightly deserve. So there's a legal argument building here. Paul says you obtain something as a matter of God's grace. He decides on his own that we should receive, be imputed with the righteousness of God. He does it as a gift to us, justifying us, declaring us innocent. And he's legally able to do that because a payment has been rendered for our sake. So believers, personally, each one of you who believe, should say the following, God declared me righteous, not guilty of my sins, apart from anything I've said or done, merely because of his grace, and he was able to do so justly because Christ was willing to pay the price for my sin. So what did he pay? What was the payment? Well, Paul explains the payment in the sixth part of the summary, found in verse 25. He says the payment was a blood sacrifice to satisfy God's justice. And the Bible word for this concept is propitiation. So you've heard imputation, propitiation, justification. You're getting all of the big Asian words in the Bible today. It is also a very important concept in our faith. The idea of propitiation is found all across the Bible. It's one of the most prevalent concepts in the Old Testament. The whole sacrificial system under the law is predicated on the idea of a propitiation. Remember I asked, how can God be fair to us, fair and just, if he erases our record of sin and gives us his nature of righteousness? Because isn't that unjust by definition? If justice means the guilty are always punished and the innocent are always set free, then would it Would it not be unjust for God to set us, the guilty, free? Yes, it would, unless a satisfactory payment is made on our behalf. So if a payment were offered and that payment satisfied the judge's demand for justice, well, then the judge could be just in allowing the guilty to go free. It's just that simple. So imagine if you were guilty of failing to pay taxes, but as you arrive for your day in court, you learn that a neighbor has paid all your back taxes and also all the penalties for you. Well, since the demands of the court have been met, the judge could set you free justly under those circumstances. And that's where Christ's propitiation comes to bear for us. Paul says God publicly displayed Christ as a blood sacrifice or propitiation is the term. The penalty God decreed in his word for sin is 
death, as you know from Genesis 2.16, the Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. And that penalty of death that God decreed for sin was a spiritual death. Obviously, Adam's body didn't die the second he ate. That's proof to us that that was not a command regarding his body. Adam's physical death is a consequence of God's curse on the earth, not because of his eating. His eating produced a spiritual death. This is the source of that fallen nature we all inherit. When Adam brought all mankind into sin, he brought us all under the same penalty. You can escape that penalty by God's grace, manifested through faith in Jesus, but his wrath for your sin still must be satisfied. Again, the judge who says you can leave freely still had to have someone pay your taxes. Until that was done, he had no just cause to let you go. Who's going to pay the price for us? When we hear about God's wrath, that word is usually associated with an outpouring of destructive power. And that is certainly an example of it. But it's not, strictly speaking, that kind of an event. Wrath is the Bible's word for a holy God's just response against that which is not righteous which includes, obviously, certain terrible consequences at certain times, including in eternity. But it doesn't always have to look the same. And to remain just, God's holy wrath against sin had to be satisfied, and it's whatever satisfies God. That's the definition of our propitiation. A payment of sacrifice to satisfy the one whose wrath has been incurred. If you think of marriage as an example, or brothers and sisters in the same home, if one does something to injure or upset the other, then when the offender wants to make amends, who determines what is needed to make amends? Is it not the injured party who gets to decide what will suffice, what appeases them? Propitiation includes this idea that it is the one who has been offended who gets to determine what satisfies their wrath. And God, being the offended party in our sin, he defines and decides what will satisfy his wrath. And since the penalty for sin is death, God demands a substitutionary payment of death, a propitiation, for us. But the death that substitutes for us cannot be that of another sinner, because their own death would merely pay the price for their own sin. As you probably know, propitiation demands someone who is innocent of sin. They can have neither shared in our sinful behaviors, but here's another more important detail. Neither can they share in our sin nature. If they have our nature, they have the same problem, even if they should live a better life than we do. So Jesus Christ is the one God prepared to be our propitiation. Scripture testifies he shared neither our nature nor our record of sin. He was born of a virgin, and that was made necessary to ensure he was not a descendant of Adam, and therefore he didn't inherit the sin nature of Adam. And he never participated in the rebellion of Adam. Though he was tempted, he never sinned. Paul explains more about Christ as our new Adam in chapter 5. So as a result, Jesus was innocent. He was undeserving of the penalty of death. And so the Father displayed him, Paul says, publicly as our propitiation, a blood sacrifice in our place. Notice at the end of where he says Christ was suffering publicly for our sake. Notice he adds, through faith, again. That is to say, the application of that payment to your heavenly account is made known to you Through faith. You can know that you have been justified before God in the court of heaven because you possess faith in that payment. Finally, we come to Paul's seventh and final point in the second half of verse 25 and into verse 26. Paul says, God has made belief 
in Christ's substitutionary death, the necessary means of salvation so that God's justice could be understood. I'd say of all the points we've just gone through, this is the one that, that most people struggle with the most in understanding it. Belief in Christ's substitutionary death is the necessary means of salvation. God made that the means so that God's justice could be understood. Notice at the end of verse 25, Paul says that in forbearance, God passed over the sins previously committed. Forbearance just means he delayed a response. So what Paul is saying is God delayed his judgment of humanity for their sin, passing over generation after generation without bringing any final judgment on the world. He was forbearing in all of these things because he knew the time had not yet arrived for his son to come into the world and to make payment on the cross. While he waited, Paul says, he passed over the sins previously committed. Now, passing over doesn't mean forgiving. It means not having acted to bring an end to sin, allowing it to continue. You could think of it as God long-suffering through generation after generation of unbelieving and evil people, knowing that the time had not yet come for him to make payment, and so he was going to forbear with them, allowing that to continue. But when the time was right, God manifested his grace publicly by Christ giving himself as our payment. Furthermore, God established that faith in that payment would be the means by which he manifests his grace at the present time, Paul says. So here's what he's saying. At that previous point when Christ was dying on the cross, publicly, so as to make clear to the world, the payment for your sin is now being made. As I promised I would do, it is now evidently happening. And then, after that moment has come and gone, how is the mankind worldwide to understand that that payment is still available? Since without seeing it, you might conclude... Well, it came and it went. Now I need something again. I need a new Christ. I need someone to die for me while I'm here. Paul says, no, so that the world today will know that God is still at work, declaring you righteous on the basis of that same propitiation. It is evidenced by seeing people's faith today in that same payment. The point in this exercise, Paul says, is to ensure that the world understands God has remained just, even as he is justifying sinners. It it stops the argument that says God is somehow unfair or evil in this plan. Have you heard people say that? They've said that as God put his own son to death, he was murdering his son. Or that as Jesus went to the cross, he was committing suicide. Or anyone who would want a God who would have to kill his own son, how can that be a, a loving God? They've twisted the meaning of what's happening. But the Bible says, with the plan of God laid out in history through a point in time and faith before and after, It's clear that he made a payment on a certain day that satisfies his wrath for sin, then assigns that payment to men and women as a matter of his grace alone, declaring them justified, and shows that he's done that by letting them exhibit faith in response, through a faith response to his work. In that way, the world can see God is just in his forgiveness because he made a payment available that that suffices for his wrath, And he is the justifier of those who believe because he applies it to them as a matter of faith. It's often called the great exchange. Christ took our penalty while we were assigned credit for his righteousness. So our heavenly account is credited with Christ's righteousness. That's how you receive the righteousness of God. Your slate has been wiped clean. You're credited with his work because God, by his grace, has granted you that credit. When that credit was given in heaven, it was manifested to you through your faith, which demonstrates to the world that you received that payment. In that way, you testify to the world that God is just. It's the one and only true gospel. It explains our predicament. It explains our need for God's provided solution. It explains how you obtain it. 
It offers an explanation for how you can know spiritual truth despite your fallen nature. It shows how you can receive something you didn't even know about and you weren't seeking. It explains how you can merit heaven even though you're still a sinner. But (laughs) that is actually just the tip of an iceberg. And I ran through a very challenging bit of deep theology quickly knowing that we were going to go back through this in a better way as Paul moves through it himself. The power of this gospel is found not in its big words or in its complexity. The power of this is found in the fact that it all depends on God. The power of this is that it addresses any human shortcoming for why we think we can't get there for our own sake. In other words, for the one who says, I don't have enough good works. Well, you don't need to worry about that. To the person who says, I don't have enough patience or self-discipline to do good things from this point forward. I barely get to church on time. Well, we have a solution for that. To the person who says, I know myself and I know how bad I've been. Well, God has taken care of that with Christ. We've only just touched on the surface of these concepts, and there's several chapters yet to go that will build them out in much greater detail, and in very interesting ways I hope you'll find. And there are a lot of other questions that will come to mind, things that he hadn't even addressed yet. For example, how about this one? How can one man's death be enough to pay for the sins of millions of people? Wouldn't we need one Christ per person? Paul addresses that in chapter 5. How does God's plan go beyond just paying the price for our sins? What about that sin nature we need to have fixed? How does that get solved? Well, Paul addresses that. And if God has declared us innocent, why do we still sin? And would the fact that I keep sinning even after I've been declared innocent mean that now I'm guilty again and I need to worry about a new declaration of innocence? It's like the guy who gets off from paying his taxes and then doesn't pay him the next time. Right? Doesn't that put our whole plan in jeopardy if I keep sinning? Paul addresses that in chapter 6 and 7. All of these questions get answered in, in the course of Paul examining the implications of this plan and how it brings us to God in the end. Just quickly to end tonight, we're going to look at the very end of the chapter. It's not a long piece because it doesn't introduce new theology. It's really a recapitulation of what he's already taught. But Paul elaborates on a couple of the first points of his summary about it being apart from law, having been witnessed by law and prophets in these verses. Read 27 through 31. He says, where then is boasting? Well, it is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. This is a, I'm going to call this a preemptive strike against anyone who would go back to arguing that salvation has a works component. We talked here at the beginning about Catholicism. This is directly to the point of the distinction between Catholicism and Protestantism, at least as it was defined in the Reformation. That is, of justification by faith alone, through faith alone, not by works. And Paul is preempting any concern at this point from his readers that there must be another piece he has neglected to mention, some piece of good works. Because I think in most people's hearts, it just makes sense to us that our path to holiness has to depend on our own actions. How can it not? We have to put away sinning, don't we? We have to think about doing good things, don't we? We have to try to be like God, don't we? How can a plan of salvation ask nothing of us? That thinking actually conceals its source because even though it sounds very generous and self-sacrificing, it actually is a result of pride, always. And the answer to all those questions is absolutely not. 
You do not have to stop sinning to be saved. You do not have to do good to be saved. I'm not encouraging that behavior. What I'm saying is those are not a part of the process. How can a plan to save us ask nothing of us? Well, it asks nothing of you in preparation for salvation. It asks much of you following your salvation. But the fact that you think or might think or entertain any thought that works are a piece of this is a result of pride because we all want to be captains of our own ship. We all like to think we're responsible for our own future. And when we reach the goals we set for ourselves, then we can take pride for having accomplished what we set out to do. It's the nature of the problem. And Paul's referring to that whole manner of thinking when he talks about the word boasting. Boasting is this attitude that suggests that I contribute to the outcome that I prefer, and then if I reach that outcome, I look back seeing myself better for having done something to get there. But God will not share his glory with anyone, nor will he allow us to perpetuate that self-deception that says we play some part in his plan of redemption. In fact, as Paul says here and later in 1 Corinthians, which we'll look at, Paul explicitly says that the plan of salvation was designed to prevent us from having any opportunity to say we were a part of it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he planned the message of it, that thing we have to believe in, to be so foolish on its face that when he manifests that faith in us, it shames the wise people of the world who couldn't find it on their own. It's intentionally dumb sounding that your solution to heaven is the death of a convicted criminal 2,000 years ago. That's how you and I get to heaven. Absolutely foolish on its face. Designed to be so that no one of any, quote, intellect would think it of value. And in eternity, they'll be shamed for it. So we have no part in the plan of God for our salvation because you could do nothing at all anyway. But moreover, the plan has been constructed specifically, Paul says, to exclude boasting. When he says it is excluded, he means the way God has chosen to save us is designed to exclude anyone from ever taking any credit for it, though we keep trying. Had God designed a plan that required anything of us, even the least step of it, then we could rightly boast about that step. That would be a plan Paul calls a law of works. That's what he means. If by a set of rules, a set of law, a set of works, if it were possible to, to make a plan of salvation that any part in works, we would cling to that little part and claim it for ourselves. But God devised a plan, or as he calls it here, a law for salvation that excluded such boasting. God has established a law or means for bringing men into righteousness that is based on faith. The plan of God's salvation is through faith because any plan of works could not yield human righteousness anyway. So God's plan is one of imputing his righteousness because that's the only way it can happen. And he says this law has one rule or one requirement, faith. That faith is manifested, so even that is not of ourselves. Even the faith that we claim is not of ourselves. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved, here again, through faith, and that, referring back to the salvation through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. What is it that is not of ourselves? The plan of salvation, to include the faith component. None of that is of yourselves. God decided in heaven by his own grace, to impute us with righteousness. That happened in a moment in heaven. We were justified. And then how did we discover that God had made that choice in his heavenly throne? He manifested the outcome to us through faith. So that our faith is not the cause of our salvation, it is the proof of our salvation. God's plan leaves us with nothing whatsoever to boast about. 
Paul says clearly in verse 28 that we maintain, he says, that men are justified apart from the works of the law. When he says we maintain, he's saying this is Christian orthodoxy. This is what Christians believe. So should anyone try to change that precept? They are no longer preaching Christianity or the true gospel. So Mormons, Catholics, any other faction that says that salvation is some other way, Paul says they are not part of the we who maintains this. They have left the faith, if they ever were a part of it. Any other view that introduces any requirement of human works has departed from Christianity. For God is working in all mankind through the same means. And, of course, in verses 29 through 30, he simply emphasizes this is Jew and Gentile alike. The last thing for the night, verse 31, he says, Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be, on the contrary, we establish it. He asks this, Does a salvation that is not of law, not of works, nullify or make void the law of God as given to Israel through the covenant? And he answers it plainly, no. But what it does do is establish the law. By establish it, he means establishes that it was right. Establishes that it was necessary. That it was, in fact, the law. And by virtue of of us requiring the righteousness of God, it affirms the unyielding quality of the law. For if there was a way into heaven that allowed us to go around the law, in any way, to ignore its principles, that would be nullifying the law. It's ironic, in a way. Anyone who is nomianistic, anyone who is Judaistic, and says that they can still merit heaven despite not keeping the law perfectly because they keep some other sets of laws or some majority of them or some other rationale, they're actually nullifying the law if they were right because they'd be saying, the law doesn't really matter. Keep some of it, keep all of it, keep none of it, we'll find a way in anyway. That's nullifying the law. Paul says, no, because God can't get around the law, but has to give you a righteousness that is equal to its standards, that establishes the law. That demonstrates the fact that it has to be met. And Christ alone does it. And by faith we receive what he did. All right, that's, that is Doctrine 101. I assure you, you will get no more drier, doctrinally focused teaching in this week. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, Um, Father, we may not always grasp all the the big words and all of the deep meaning, Father, but thankfully we don't need to to be saved. But that doesn't mean we don't care to know these things for the sake of someone who does need to know them, Father. We pray that you'd uh, help these things sink in if we revisit this teaching at some point as we give ourselves over to it through other study, that we become someone who could explain in simple terms the majesty and the power of what you've done in Christ for that one who's burdened with, with legalism in the faith or for that one who is trying in vain to work their way to heaven. That we could be a a person who brings that breath of fresh air, the beauty of the gospel as it's truly intended, and be the good news, uh, be the one who brings good news so that that person could be freed from those burdens, Father, and truly know the grace that you offer in Christ. We pray for that opportunity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.